The Army's boss talks housing. The idea of services, families, accommodation that is relatively adjacent to where people are going to have their working lives is important. And the Navy's boss talks ships. You can inject greater pace uh, into the build of ships. You can keep a more steady drumbeat of ships coming in and out of service. Where will future forces families live? Private or service accommodation? The MOD is proposing a major change to the way service personnel and their families are housed, but not everybody likes the idea. Charlotte Banks has been looking at the pros and cons. Service family accommodation, known as SFA, has been at the heart of military life for decades. But now the MOD is developing a new way of housing the majority of its families, either helping them onto the housing ladder or giving them an allowance so they can rent in the private sector. Zoe Sharp's husband serves in the armed forces and they live together with their three children in an SFA house near the base where he works. Like many families, she's worried that even with help they won't be able to afford private rent it terrifies me absolutely terrifies me it could be that we move into accommodation that just isn't fitting for the family and that we can't afford is near schools that you know aren't suitable for the children um what if there was problems with the accommodation um who would fork out for that if there's landlords that aren't prepared to fix it what do we do then Zoe is more than one of 8,000 families who responded to the Army Families Federation survey on the plans for military housing, which is called the Future Accommodation Model, or FAM. The survey revealed that 70% of respondents would prefer to live in SFA rather than rent or buy in the private sector. 76% said under the new accommodation model they would leave or consider leaving the forces. The MOD says its new model is much fairer because it gives service personnel more freedom to choose not only where they live, but who they live with. The AFF's chief executive, Sarah Bard, says they've drawn up recommendations for the MOD to follow as it develops its plans for FAM. The first one is very positive. It's good that entitlement is being reviewed of who is entitled to support for housing. The second one is that SFA need to be retained. We need to see that as a true option for our families, at wherever they are. And the final thing that we're bringing out of it is that no one in the existing cohort should see their offer being reduced as a result of an implementation of FAM. When Zoe's husband joined the army, SFA was part of the offer he signed up to. So how do they as a family feel now it could disappear? Kind of betrayed, really. Um, we're just wondering whether it's even worth it, worth the struggle of staying here when we could go, when my husband and myself could go out, get a job on Civvy Street and not have to worry. There wouldn't be such a, an uncertain future for us. So, what is the big idea and how will it work? Well, this morning I put some of those concerns to the Chief of the General Staff, General Sir Nick Carter. Well, I think the most important point to make up front is that no decisions have been made. And I think a lot of the talk about various propositions that people have picked up is therefore rumour. Uh, and I think that's a shame. Um, I think this project has got to be handled with great transparency. It's got to be very well communicated. And I think the other thing I can say to reassure people is that the Army's position in this will be properly represented. 
Um, and I can go into the detail of that if you'd like to hear. How, how will you represent the army, army's position? Well, I think, I think the first point that most people now understand is that probably 70% of the army is not like the other services. Um, and it draws its operational effectiveness from the human bonding that is created by living together um, on what we call patches or garrisons or stations. And that's a really important system because, of course, it's a system that over years has proved to be able to withstand the shocks and challenges you get if units are deployed to combat operations or wherever else it might be. And it's a system for handling bereavement and all the uncertainty associated with operations. And I think people understand that now. And, of course, that means that if we're going to assure our operational effectiveness in the future, the idea of services, families, accommodation that is relatively adjacent to where people are going to have their working lives is important. But that doesn't mean that one size fits all. Uh, and there will be other people at different stages in their lives that perhaps want a different answer. And I think that the idea of choice is important. Um, so I think, you know, we, there, there are ways of producing a proposition which matches all of that, I suspect. I mean, one of the big fears is that this will mean the end of the patch and the end of the community that's created by that. Are you saying that that's not the case? Well, I'm going to argue very strongly from the Army's perspective that we draw our operational effectiveness from the idea of people living together. Um, and if we can provide that in the future, so we should try to, because that's part of the requirement. I think there are other things we have to acknowledge. I mean, the traditional definition of a family is slightly different nowadays, and one needs to take account of those sorts of factors. But the principle that services, families, accommodation provides for operational effectiveness at unit level is something that I think we should argue strongly for. Some 35,000 army families live in uh, forces accommodation. For those people that want to remain in that kind of accommodation, will they be able to under the future accommodation model? Well, the answer is I, um, I don't know, because nobody has yet tabled a proposition based upon adequate evidence. Uh, and until that point in time arrives, I don't think we can answer that question. Mm -hmm. I think what we can do is to state the argument that the army will put forward, which is the one I've just made about operational effectiveness, because that's a very compelling argument, and it's one that I think everybody understands, and I don't think we need to make it any more strongly than we already have done. But as to the rest of it, um, people are looking at options at the moment, they're modelling them. And where I'm reassured is I think people also understand that decisions have got to be based upon facts, data and evidence. Because absent all of that, you'll come to the wrong conclusions. Um, and it mustn't be on anecdote. And of course, the problem with these things is that people have different perceptions. And if you're a youngster, you'll have a very different perception to somebody in their middle age. The MOD will present its proposals, which you, I believe, can amend or perhaps have a red line on. How much influence do you have and on what points would you send it back and say, I'm not having that? Well, it, it, it's more collaborative than that. Uh, I mean, the people who are doing the work at the moment have got a number of options which they are modelling, to use the expression. They are gathering evidence and they're gathering data. And we will be exposed to all of that as the work progresses. Because if you end up having to argue against a proposition that's fully formed, it's a very dangerous place to be. It's much better to do this collaboratively. And the people who are trying to do this are not you know, they're not badly intentioned. What they're trying to do is to find a sustainable answer that matches people's requirements. How are you going to make sure that everybody's voices are heard? Um, well, again, it's about proper consultation. Um, and what must happen with any change programme is that it's got to be done transparently and it's got to be done in touch with those who might be affected by it. Mm. Because, because some people feel that they're not getting heard at the moment. Are you saying that that's going to come and that people will be consulted or do they have to take action themselves to we, make sure they're heard? Nobody is going to, to rush this without listening to people's perspectives. Mm. I'm often asked what is the most important characteristic of senior leadership and I always say it's humility. 
But importantly, it's the humility to listen and then it's the humility to amend the plan if you hear a better answer. Because you have a difficult position, really, because um, the MOD presents that this is... Um, it, it's untenable keeping the service family accommodation at the level it is at the moment. And yet, at the same time, you've got to look after the welfare of your people and the incentive to, to remain within the army. How do you get that balance right? Well, I mean, you have to look at the whole thing. Um, at the end of the day, I'm responsible uh, for the operational output of the army, and I draw that operational effectiveness from the community and the families that are the army. Um, so I have to balance it. Um, and everything in life, sadly, is a balance. And it's about trying to find the right balance and making people understand why you have chosen that approach. I think there's another point I'd make. I think a lot of people have suggested that FAM is about stability and that FAM is therefore about static living and not moving around. I would argue very strongly, and I feel strongly about this personally, that actually it's not about that. It's about the stability of relationships and it's about the stabilities of families. And certainly having been married for over 30 years to a remarkable woman who's put up with me disappearing at all sorts of places uh, for long periods of time, often at very short notice, supported by some really patient children. It's the stability of the relationship that matters. But also the, the accommodation does have a part to play because if you've got financial concerns or if it's not convenient to be able to see each other because of where it is, that that is also going to undermine And that's a factor of it. But what we shouldn't be arguing, which I think people are trying to argue, is that this is about being static. Because that's not the way that we deliver our operational output. What we need to be doing is making sure, through all of the means that we can, that we provide for relationships. How concerned are you that um, the fact that there may not be as much uh, accommodation provided as there was in the past, that this may actually be a disincentive for some people who might have joined the army in the past because you get a roof over your head? Well, again, I, I'd say I don't think we can yet be sure how much accommodation is going to be available until we've got a proposition to look at. Um, again, I think it comes back to a point I made earlier. I mean, wh wherever you are in your stage of life, you have different aspirations and different things that motivate you. And when I was an 18-year-old joining the army, marriage was not something I contemplated. And I didn't really care where I lived because I hadn't contemplated it. Um, I then probably met somebody I wanted to marry when I was in my late 20s. And I became rightly grumpy about the quality of the married quarter I had. But there was quite a long period where it wasn't a factor in my life. So I think you have to, you have to see what motivates people at different stages in their lives to be clear about what it is that will inspire them. You said you don't know how much service family accommodation will be offered. Do you have an idea in your head of what's workable, or what's, what, what, what you'd ex find acceptable? Well, I think that we have to take account of the financial position. Uh, and you'll know that um, there is an arrangement the Ministry of Defence has with a firm called Allington Homes. And that at the moment is being examined. We don't yet know, I think, quite what the envelope is in terms of what everything's going to cost. And therefore, you can't come to these judgments just yet. I mean, on the emotional side of things, some people say, this is a betrayal. This is not what I expected. I expect it to be looked after. How do you answer those kind of emotions? Well, they are putting those emotions forward, I think, on the basis of rumour. No decisions have been made yet. And I'm absolutely determined that we get the right answer. So you will defend your personnel? Yes, of course I will. That's the first and foremost duty of any CGS. That was the Chief of the General Staff, General Sir Nick Carter, and we'll hear a bit more from him in a few minutes' time. But first, our Defence Analyst Christopher Lee is here as ever. Um, Christopher, it was interesting how much importance he was putting on patch life and how it contributed to operational effectiveness. That's right. I mean, it, all three services are like this. I mean, if you, if you do any sort of command course, before, designate you're going to be a commanding officer or anything, one of the things they tell you, is that uh, first, first first Sunday inspection, what do you do? 
you go and look where the guys live. You go and see how they are, because that can sink your ship. That can sort of make disruptions. And also families, when you take a family, when you take a soldier away, families are left in there. The colonel's wife thing doesn't work anymore. You know, looking after the family. But one of the one of the things that comes out of that, uh, what he's talking about here, is a the transparency needed to make sure that everybody does know what's going on. He was adamant on. about that, wasn't he? It's, it's a complete and utter breakdown in communication systems within the services, all three services, not just the army, within the MOD, of people saying, well, look, we don't know, we can't uh, know yet, and you've got to bear with us. But is it not people a- do not bear with you. They say, listen, we know that... But is that not because they're working it out and that people will know, that the, the evidence will be presented? Absolutely, yes, it is. But if you go on the ground and talk to families, and especially if you talk to people in the army, they will turn around and say, isn't it something that they're doing this, that they're having to do this, that it's it, as if it were new? We've all known for mm. 40 years how bad accommodation is, and we have passed the stage in the services where you get people coming in to join the army who lived in worse conditions, so they think it's all right. It is not, not 21st century thinking, but it's only just starting. Still to come, shipbuilding, why the government's been told to get a grip. Okay, well, seeing as we don't often get to chat at length to the head of the army, I took the opportunity to ask General Sir Nick Carter about the current state of service. I asked him what he thought was the army's proudest moment in 2016. Gosh, I mean, it's difficult to pick out one particular moment. I mean, I think what's truly remarkable about the army is it always delivers whenever it's asked to do a task. Um, And we do it at short notice. We invariably do things that nobody else will do. Uh, We still have at the heart of what we do this sense of service and duty, terms that are perhaps a little old-fashioned these days. But there are not many institutions you can ring up on a Friday evening and say that the ambulance drivers are going on strike on a Monday and we will produce a 1,000 drivers over the weekend. It's interesting you mention that, because how do you see the future of the army going forward? I mean, in Afghanistan, it probably was the last major combat mission involving British troops that we'll see in this generation. Is it less about fighting now and more about humanitarian aid and bailing out the government when they haven't got the services they need? Well, that's quite a, that's quite a sporty prediction you've put out there. Um, I cannot remember a time in my life when the strategic context was more complex or dynamic i think for me the defining condition at the moment is instability so anybody but who i mean would... a deployment of large numbers of ground troops well, who I, will be I in I a combat think, mission i don't think you can predict that either okay. i think the world's a very uncertain place you know and a very high priority of the cgs after his personnel support of his army will be the readiness of the army and i think we have to be prepared for new contingencies these days now, I'm not going to predict World War III is turning up anytime soon, but I would be, it would be a brave person, given the events of 2016 in political terms, who would predict what might happen in 2017. I won't ask you that question then. <laughs> um, what about you? I mean, you talked about the changing populations and people coming into the British Army. Do you think the nature of the personnel you want to attract is changing? Um, yes, I think it is. I think it's different. It's more challenging. I mean, our traditional cohort, whence we recruited 16 to 25-year-old white male Caucasian, is probably 25% less than it was 10 years ago in terms of a cohort to attract. Um, It is a fact that 20% of primary school children now are from the black Asian minority, ethnic minorities. Uh, It is a fact that our business is becoming more technical and more scientific, so we need different skills. So I think the marketplace is changing and we have to respond to that. 
Uh, and we've also got to try and provide a different career structure for people who are going to want to be stimulated in different ways to deliver different skills. So what's the best kind of uh, sales pitch you can do for the army? I suppose people who might be wanting to go and fight in a war might not see an imminent prospect of doing that. What do you think they should uh, join for? Well, there is still a great deal of activity. I mean, as at yesterday, 44,000 British soldiers have been deployed overseas in 41 different countries this year alone. So there's a great deal of activity happening. Some of it is operational, some of it is perhaps less operational. But in terms of stimulation, it's rewarding. I'll give you an example. The Light Dragoons, um, a Royal Armour Corps regiment based um, in East Anglia, in about six weeks ago, got into their um, jackal um, recce vehicles and drove from Swanton Morley, where they're based, down to Marchwood. They embarked on a ferry. They disembarked in Casablanca in Morocco and drove 400 miles into the Moroccan desert to exercise with a Moroccan parachute battalion and then four weeks later came home the same way. Well, for soldiers, that's a massively stimulating opportunity. So whilst it might not be the images of Ross Kemp flowing back from Afghanistan as at today, um, there's a great deal going on that is stimulating and rewarding, I think, for people to want to aspire to join the army to do. And what will be your priorities for 2017 for the British Army? Well, it's about being ready. Um, it's about maximising the talent of all of our people. Um, and it's about making sure that we continue to put forward this extraordinary ethos of service and duty, um, which makes us into an institution that the country loves. And mm. we polled a 91% approval rating the other day. Just to touch uh, on something that's been announced today by the MOD, greater levels of compensation for people in the British Army who might be injured or killed while serving in a combat situation overseas. Uh, how important is it that when something like that happens, that the right kind of action to protect service personnel and their families is taken? Well, I think there are two points here. I think the first point is that I welcome any legislation that makes it possible for um, people to claim compensation in a more agile way than has been the case in the past. And I think it's tremendous that the Defence Secretary's found it possible to push this forward. And I think the second point, which I know Michael Fallon absolutely understands, is that this idea of looking at combat immunity and making sure that we provide the right legal framework in which our leaders can fight on the battlefield, sure in the knowledge that they will be protected in the way in which they conduct their activities, is vital. That said, it's important, of course, that we fight at the right standard and that we mustn't compromise our values and standards on that battlefield. And I think it's important that we take account of that as well. Are you at all concerned that that might mean that in future, should somebody be killed in action and there be claims that they were poorly equipped or that there was some kind of failure in duty of care, that the MOD will not be scrutinised as it may have been through the courts? I think if, if there are genuine mistakes made, then it's right and proper that those are examined and learned from. But I think in principle, we mustn't try and create a framework in which our junior leadership feel constrained because Battlefields are places that are very difficult to describe and invariably it's the fleeting opportunity that gives you the chance of winning on a battlefield. So it's important that we get the right balance in all of this. That was the Chief of the General Staff, General Sir Nick Carter. Christopher, lots of balancing in his job, isn't there? <laughs> there is, but there's a theme, isn't there? It's transparency. Mm. Now, his biggest problem, you were saying, you know, 1970, uh, 2017, where are we are going to get to? His biggest problem there is Manning, as he would call it. He, he's got lots of projects going. He's got lots of a uh, whole new image of what the army is. But in fact, the figures are going down. There's maybe a 91% approval 
as there is from the public for the army, it, you may have 44,000, as, as there are, 44,000 soldiers at the moment deployed in 44 countries doing something, whether it be a, a military attaché or an exercise or with Casablanca, with the Moroccans or whatever. But the truth is the numbers are going down. So it's, it, that is important. Now, to get the numbers mm. up, you've got to get into the thing which the MOD finds difficult to cope with, and do that's you, the idea of, of transparency. Do you think we're actually seeing a transformation of the British Army? Yeah, we're seeing a transformation of the British Army to what it might be looking like. There is an organisation, for example, that at the moment is looking out to 2045 of what the army, what the world is going to be like. It, it will take in the idea that there could have been two nuclear exchanges between now and 2045. That's a different organisation altogether, but that's what they're having to think on. And it's at his headquarters where that organisation is. So what he's talking about is accommodation today. How do you find a good room for somebody? What we're talking about is in, say, 20, 25 years' time, which is in the lifetime of somebody like him, for example, in, in his career, and that's what he might be facing. That is the wider, wider transparency which the Ministry of Defence has to think through far more than the Army is. The government has been told to get a grip of warship building to stop a vicious cycle of rising costs and fewer ships. Sir John Parker's independent report to ministers also recommends simpler designs for future warships and converting commercial vessels for some of the support fleet. Well, James Hurst spoke to the first sea lord, Admiral Sir Philip Jones. I'm very pleased with Sir John Parker's report and I absolutely share his ambition for what he wants to do with the shipbuilding industry. The Royal Navy's worked very closely with him uh, as he's drawn up his recommendations uh, and I absolutely see what he's trying to do and, and support it. For me, it's an opportunity to harness all of the flexibility and availability in the wider shipbuilding community around the UK so that we can inject, as he rightly calls it, grip and pace into the way we design and build warships. And that's got to be a good thing for me. Do you share his uh, assessment that what's been happening is ageing ships retained in service, resulting in further refit and maintenance costs, and, and you're spending money on old ships and get, therefore getting fewer new ships? I recognise that observation, uh, and that has been one of the challenges we've had with, uh, with keeping ships going for perhaps longer than we had originally intended. What he wants to do about that, I think, is absolutely right. He has recognised that too many of our surface ship programmes in the past have been one-offs. We've stood up a design team, uh, we've come up with a design for a ship, we've manufactured it and delivered it, and then, in many cases, those teams have stood down and waited for when the next order might come along. He has identified if you keep that team in being, if you keep a continuous line of shipbuilding for a whole raft of different types of ships, and hopefully many that we will export too, not just use in the Royal Navy, you can inject greater pace uh, into the build of ships. You can keep a more steady drumbeat of ships coming in and out of service and therefore stop ships going beyond their expected life and, and costing longer to keep them like that. I mean, for example, on the, the Type 31, he's, he's recommending that this is an urgent project that should be built simply and for exportability. Is this the end of the Royal Navy getting cutting-edge ships that make it a world leader? 
No, not at all. Um, firstly, the, the Type 31 has got to be seen in the context of the rest of the of the shipbuilding strategy for the Royal Navy that's already in place. We're uh, on the cusp of completing the build of the two largest warships the Navy's ever had, the Queen Elizabeth-class carriers. Uh, we are about to start the build of the complex high-end Type 26 frigates, and we'll cut steel on the first one of those in Glasgow next summer. We're also building astute-class submarines and now have a route to building dredge class submarines, we're building offshore patrol vessels and we're building Royal Fleet Auxiliary. So a large, comprehensive and necessary shipbuilding strategy is in place for the Navy. But what the Type 31 does is offer an opportunity both to fill in the gaps uh, of the announcements made about the surface fleet in SDSR 2015, uh, the additional ships that were needed to keep our numbers of destroyers and frigates up, but also do it with a design that we think will be more interesting and potentially usable by many of our partners and allies who want to build a ship that, yes, is complex and credible and can look after itself, um, but is going to be more affordable, is going to have a lower level of manning, and is going to catch the eye of many of those partner navies who want, want something a, a little less than the very top end that the Type 26 is. This is a great opportunity, I think. Well, that was the first Sea Lord, Admiral Sir Philip Jones, speaking to James Hurst. Well, listening to that was naval historian and security analyst, Professor Eric Grove. Good to speak to you today, Eric. How are Thank you? you? Too, yeah, um, would, would this solution mean the Royal Navy would get what it needs? Well, I think so, yes. I mean, the encouraging thing is that it looks as if the Type 26 and the Type 31E, E for exportability, programmes, are going to go on in parallel. Um, and it looks as if, too, that the 31s are going to be built by a consortium not led by BAE. Uh, now, BAE might contribute, and the Secretary of State, when he was up in, in Scotland, was saying, you know, that they were in, in pole position. But that doesn't seem to be the case, actually. I think that some other company is going to be the major coordinator of this virtual shipbuilding consortium that's the... Uh, that Parker's talking about setting up. But it looks as if we may be getting two two supplementary different classes of frigate coming along at the same time. And that is very encouraging because I agree with all those who are saying there aren't enough in service at the moment, frigates and destroyers. Mm. Critics uh, have said that this kind of report is actually just delaying things further. Why don't we just get on with it, they're saying. Well, the report is talking about getting on with it, and that's the encouraging thing. It's making some very interesting suggestions about improved management. How long will it take to get on with it? Well, sadly, into the 2020s. But on the other hand, I think the pace of shipbuilding, the drumbeat, as they call it, will actually speed up. It looks as if they will. It will. So, therefore, um, I'm, quite, I'm quite optimistic. I think that the Parker Report is saying the right kinds of things. Of course, we'll have to see how the government responds to it. I doubt if the people in Scotland are quite so happy as perhaps they ought to be. But they've got the whole Type 26 programme. They've got eight ships being, being built. And there are calls in the report, too, for making B, uh, BAE on the Clyde rather more efficient still. So I think that this could well be a new beginning for a much more efficient and effective British warship building industry and also a larger fleet of frigates and destroyers back towards the 25 or 26 that we really ought to have. You say it depends on how the government reacts to this. Uh, do you think it will welcome it? Do you think it will take these recommendations on board? The vibes I get is probably yes. I mean, certainly we heard from Phil that the, that the, that the Navy is firmly behind it. Phil, and that, and that... you're mates with Phil, are you? 
I think I taught him at Dartmouth. <laughs> oh, did you really? Uh, <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. No. No. He's uh, no. He's a uh, he's a very good friend. Actually, was he a good a, student? Was he? Yes, he was actually a bright chap. Graduate entry. Oh, good. Uh, one of the, a, a very good first sea lord. And I think that uh, and he seems quite pleased. And I think I agree with him. And 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 that and the things are looking optimistic. We've got to have more frigates and destroyers, particularly in the context of the Type Forty Five having the engine problems. Mm. Uh, the Type Twenty Threes are, are are getting old. Yes. They're uh, they're they'll be coming out of service in the early in the early 20, 2020s and it would be rather nice if we could have a type 31 in service to replace the first one coming out of service that's not totally impossible well, it would be an optimistic interpretation but i think it's possible i like optimism professor eric grove good to speak to you as ever and, and send our regards to phil will you Yes, I will, yes. Next time I meet him. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Eric. Um, Christopher Lee, I mean, we've been talking about sort of the planning and the thinking behind uh, what makes up, underpins our armed forces. Of course, there's a big wide world out there, isn't there, where the reality strikes? Tell you what, uh, the, uh, the Secretary of State for Defence, when he gets home tonight, in his red box, he'll open his red box, and none of this will be right on the top. Things that are still on the top, Aleppo... Worst, worst position ever. Assad is stronger than ever. United Nations Security Council has, has given up, washed its hands of the whole thing. The Russians are offering a humanitarian corridor. Nobody believes them. In the Gulf, the Royal Navy, as regards a couple of its ships have been threatened and been spied upon. Mosul, 1.3 civilians there, which, which means uh, air support has been re- withdrawn. But they're still waiting. It's Christmas Day and we'll have the full list of Trump's ministers. It's a mm. tradition that he delivers them on Christmas Eve. Wow, the reindeer, wow, the reindeer, they call it in Washington. And that is all we have time for today. Wow, the reindeer. My thanks to our guests. Tell us what you think. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP and never miss an episode. You can subscribe to this show as a podcast. Just search online for BFBS SITREP. So from me, Kate Chabot, thanks for listening. We'll be back same time next week. Bye-bye for now. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.